On the Empire podcast this week, we have a producer, a director, his wife and her lover, all we would have if we hadn't already eaten his wife and her lover. So we'll have to make do with the entirely uneaten talents of Jason Blum, the producer, and Brett Ratner, the director, as they talk The Purge Anarchy and Hercules, respectively. That's not all, though. We also cast our beady critical collective eye on the likes of, well, The Purge Anarchy and uh, Hercules, as well as Nick Cage's latest possible return to form, Joe. Plus, all the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that's currently being beamed into your brain via hypnotic space lasers operated by half-kitten, half-cat creatures known as catons, who invisibly float around your head on tiny clouds of smugness. No, wait, hang on. No, yep, no, I read that wrong. The only movie podcast that you're currently listening to. Hello pod, I'm Ali Plum and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As you may have noticed, I am not Chris Hewitt who is in Comic-Con, and I am not Helen O'Hara, who was on holiday somewhere that isn't here, and I'm not Phil the Semelin, who can't be me, because he's right in front of me, sitting there, looking at his intelligent, handsome, nearby face. I can tell he's in dire need of an introduction that doesn't mention art house films or subtitles. So, Phil, I'm going to tell you how nice you look. Phil, you look nice. Thanks, Ali. Did I nail it? Yeah. Good. I like, I miss the, I, I, I miss the art house introduction a little bit. You absolute prick. <laughs> ben is another person also in the room He is here in our special, of course We've been doing a lot of this lately Three-man pod booth He is our third man A man so offensively pleasant It's almost pleasantly offensive It's our occasionally resident nice guy Ben Kirby Ben, you look nice today Thank you, that's very kind That was pleasant of you also Thanks, man We're so pleasant So you, bloody this pleasant This is pleasant, isn't it? Shall we down it down a bit? What, the pleasantries? You're both a bunch of fuck knuckles Oh, ouch That's better That's better um, You've come back from Rome recently, haven't you? I have Did you pay a visit to... Cinecetta to where? Studios No Where's that? It's in Rome I believe Oh okay That's a shame I haven't even seen The Great Beauty I felt like I was really missing Outrageous. out I should have done my homework Before I came what I haven't did seen you do Vita. I just I just wandered around Wondering what these places were Not recognising them for cinema More on that story later <laughs> As it develops <laughs> uh, Right so We as we often do Are going to start With some questions That are sent from you guys All of these ones Are from Facebook Imagine that. Tremendous. Tremendous. Bring them the hell on. Dave Sparks. Uh, there's no at symbols, obviously, on Facebook, Also, I'm told. The podcast before last, you mentioned Scotland getting a certain animated movie a week before the UK. That's likely because school holidays often start a week earlier in Scotland, so the films are released at the start of the holidays. Oh, so, is that what it is? Yeah, this is How to Train Your Dragon 2, I yeah, take Yeah, that's it. right, yeah. Right. And we should have twigged that. It's quite foolish. Uh, same goes for Ireland. They don't operate on the same way we do, and by we I mean England and Wales, I guess. Anyway, here's his question. A schoolish question for the podcast. Which film school kid can you most relate to? Not who you'd want to be, but who you were most like. Luke Perry from Beverly Hills 90210. Not really film, is it? But that was me. That was you? Yeah. Well, if we're not doing films, then I was Seth Cohen from The O.C., obviously. Oh, yeah. No, I was nothing like Luke Perry whatsoever. More like Pedro, I think, (laughs) from Napoleon Dynamite. With a little Max Fisher, a rocker blazer. Vote for Phil. Vote Phil. Vote Phil. If mm. you have ever seen a photograph of me, and God bless you if you have, and survived, I look, or have looked, just like Napoleon Dynamite in my uh, perhaps younger years. Not as young as I'd like them to have been years. So yeah, I guess I have to say Napoleon Dynamite. Is I that what the beard that. is in aid of? Yeah, the beard's essentially just for protection from Napoleon Dynamite comparisons. Uh, for a time I was also compared to Mr. Tumnus, but I don't think he's ever gone to school. So he's probably not a valid answer to this question. <laughs> Mr. Tumnus. Yeah, Mr. Tumnus was a big one. Yeah, people would come up to me. But with... Mr. Tumnus was a fully grown fawn. Yeah. And you were just a small child. 
I was once. Very yeah. hairy child, though. I was such a hairy baby. Uh, but yeah, that, I mean, other, I mean, I can't think of that many real the people I'd like to be. When I, I would love, love, love to be Ferris Bueller so much. He is just the coolest guy. To call him a school kid doesn't seem right because he's no. not really at school. Everyone wants to be him. I, in fact, again, I think I'm more Cameron. I'm actually older than I look, and uh, I do kind of passable voices, but not really. But you're not ravaged by horrible depression. Let's not get into that. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> Fuck you. Uh, uh, ben, who's, who's your uh, school kid? Well, if we're being completely honest, probably it's going to have to be maybe Oliver from Submarine. Ah. Very pretentious, very uh, smug and awful <coughs> and smarmy and tries to see life as a film. Nouvelle Vague, in his case. Uh, and uh, had a thing for hats and tried to make hats work for a while. I tried that and it, it didn't work out. What hat did you try most before I you realised it was wrong? I don't think I should say. It's just too embarrassing. Deerstalker? I had a trilby for a while. Oh. <laughs> and that was bad. I was like 12, but uh, but it wasn't good. You're listening to Empire Podcast's Hat Confessions. Yeah, it really is a confession. It's less Welsh and my mum never had an affair with a judo instructor, but apart from that, as far as I know, I mean, who knows? Drop her a text. Yeah, I should have found out now. And, uh, but yeah. That's that's probably the closest comparison I can think of. Either that or probably Will from the Inbetweeners. Although once someone did say that they thought I seemed like I had a lot of allergies, which I don't have any allergies, but she was convinced, like, that's allergy kid. It's the ultimate insult. I you... know. It's just like, so what allergies do you have? As if I had some, and I don't. Was she hitting on you? Uh, if she was, she was doing it very badly. Um, she's really going for the sort of self-esteem hit. Do you want to go back to my place and compare allergies? <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. The Inbetweeners are a great shout too. They're obviously in their filmic form... They're not doing much school kiddery. They're just being, you know, shoved into ants' nests and mm. falling off. I did go boats. to Malia after school as well, so I'm I'm pretty similar. Shit. And I read Jane Eyre on the beach. <laughs> Classy. I could probably relate to speaking if we're going to broaden this to TV. Um, the Fresh Meat crew. That's uni, though, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you better say Fresh We've Prince, graduated. and that's just not true. The Fresh Prince. You are just not the Fresh. Did you Prince. go to uni early, Phil? Were you some wunderkind? Yeah, I went to uni age seven. Okay, I got a masters. I think you're more Jazzy Jeff now. I think about it. Jazzy Jeff. You know Fresh Prince. Yeah. Um, who is the Fresh Prince's close but little buddy? Alfonso is the actor. Uh, Carlton. I love how you know him by his actor. His yeah, actual yeah. Voice. <laughs> Carlton. Yeah, yeah, I have a friend who is is Carlton. His nickname was Carlton. So I guess technically that would make me. Will Smith in Fresh Prince potentially well, you look pretty it's similar good, as well thanks it's a good question actually because when I was at school like Nightmare Now if you'd watch the horror movies of the day the mm, nightmares mm. and you come back and you laugh that seen, was the same for me I've I remember seen, I was talking about The Exorcist and yeah. how someone said their dad had vomited with terror when he went to see it and we were like <gasps> yeah you'd have to go more my dad is Satan yeah. well, I, saw, I, saw, well. I, saw, I saw Scream when I was nine yeah. and um, was genuinely traumatised by it that was on Christmas Eve and it just ruined Christmas Day for me because I didn't sleep a wink that night. Of course you bloody didn't. But I was cool because I'd seen Scream. So, you know. For me, it's a payoff, isn't it? You were really tired, but cool. Yeah. For me, it was all the, uh, any mafia film. Any mafia film in my school was the coolest, the coolest thing. Like, you know, The Godfather was the coolest thing or, you know, Goodfellas was just totally, you were cool. But yeah, it's always the horrors. In fact, the one cool thing I had that in, in involving film is that somebody who I won't mention managed to get hold of a Jurassic Park, like, bootleg copy before it came to England. So I was watching it on VHS on a tiny, tiny screen on a friend of a friend's, like, sofa. 
and I just thought I was the coolest guy ever. And you remember when you were younger, when people, you tell them, oh, I've watched this great film that everyone's excited about, and they just said, oh, tell me what happens, and you ended up for the whole of lunch break telling them the exact story of the film, and that was just you, King of the Hill, like... <laughs> Yeah, nobody said spoiler. Yeah, no, there's kind of pre-internet days though, where people can just Google exactly what it is, or look on Put Locker or whatever to to watch something illegally on VHS. God. Yeah, I know. Smuggled it out. I, I don't know how it worked out. Honestly, honestly, I, I I was for like three days cool, and then of course that actually came out in cinemas. So that's a different answer to a different question. But I love that question. I'd like to hear what Chris and Helen would say in terms of like you know what films were cool. So. Make a make a mental mm, note. Welcome I know to what they were like at school. Welcome to the Empire Film Piracy Podcast <laughs> <laughs> with Ali Plum, your host and chief pirate. <laughs> chief pirate, not captain. Chief pirate. Uh, as he dons his eye patch. Let's um, let us move on to another question from Bobby Hill. This one, thank you, Bobby Hill. Empire Podcast question. Here is a question for all you lovely people. It's obvious that you all have a deep love for movies, but did any of you actually have any aspirations to get into the film business instead of film journalism? And now, knowing what you know and what we've seen, if you had to get into the movie game, what job, in front or behind of the camera, would you like to try or even think you might be good at? He then gives us a compliment, which is far too complimentary, and I'm going to have to not mention it. Love, Bobby. Oh. Nice, Bobby. Very nice indeed. Facebook people are lovely. They are. Not that Twitter people aren't lovely. They're lovely too. No, but they have more room to be lovely. But Bebo wankers. Yeah, yeah. fucking uh, Bebo. Come on, let's be honest. We throw in the bin every week. MySpace scum. Uh, no, not really. Sorry, if there's anyone out there, isn't there? What a waste hey, of look, time. We're joking, but seriously, if anybody on Friendster contacts us again, I will. I will Friendster. Come, I will come round your house. Is that a thing? <laughs> not anymore. What is Friendster? Do you remember? It was already old by the time it came out but the movie um, I'm just not that into you or he's just not that into you yeah. has Drew Barrymore's character meet somebody off MySpace yeah and it is at the time the most achingly old like <laughs> at un- the time the film came out is it a, is it a Fox production though because that might explain it because Murdoch owns no this MySpace. is no this is way back this oh, is really? before it was a thing I think or maybe you're right I don't know it could have been a tie in I'm just being conspiracy theorist you, you know how Sony movies like oh god Sony movies always have Sony Vios mm. and now Vios don't exist so even though the movie was made three years ago you can still see Vios everywhere and everyone's what is the name of that movie where it wasn't like Friends with Benefits but it was Justin Timberlake and uh, Mila Kunis and they play in one section for about three or four minutes that PS3 we want to be is that Friends with is it Friends with Benefits or is that the other one there were two that came out I think it was I think it was Friends with Benefits anyway that's again a different answer to a different question if you could be behind the camera or in front of the camera or be part of the movie making business what would it have been and did you ever have any dreams of being in that position yeah I wanted to be a stuntman did you really? Yeah. Have no, I, I, did, I don't think I did, actually. I was quite, quite afraid of most things, um, especially brutal injuries. They are the worst. Um, I'm not sure I ever... I sort of semi-still do harbour those things, so I don't want to rule myself out if <laughs> Brian Glazer should call. I will brother, help. Your brother did it, didn't he? Didn't he start out? He did. That's how he got into this. He worked as a runner uh, on the first Harry Potter. Harry Potter and the... You, you know, can do this. The Philosopher's Sorcerer. And we went to, I remember going to the rap party of that film actually, and that must have been, well, it was a long time ago, let's be honest. And then he also worked on, that was with Christopher Columbus, he used to scour Watford for sushi, for like yellowfin tuna for Chris Columbus, who hadn't quite got his head around the fact that the Hertfordshire market wasn't quite as reflective of Asian Pacific cuisine as Los Angeles. Um, and uh, um, like, what did he do after that? I can't remember. But yeah, he did that. I mean, look, as a runner, it's a really good intro uh, to yeah. to the movie business. Um David Heyman, we, 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 when we spoke to him about gravity, he, he said that he'd started off doing that. He worked as a runner on David Lean's um, Passage to India. 
and taught him some important lessons about movie making. I'd always imagine it's one of those things that you sort of need to know that you want to do almost immediately mm. and really pursue it relentlessly. And as I'm sure many I, people have, I the think only thing I was pursuing relentlessly in those days was sort of horror movies my football team and girls and yeah horror movies so not then maybe more now I suppose especially with a view to writing I had a period of wanting to be part of like actually making movies and I managed to get some work experience at surprisingly enough you know coincidentally on a Harry Potter film which reveals my age actually and it was for Goblet of Fire and I originally came in for like two or three weeks to help with the publicity department because that's where I managed to get the placement. Then over the course of the next few days, it dawned on them that they didn't have enough for me to do. So I ended up going down to the costume department and spent about four or five days with the costume department because, and this is just, this is, I don't care, I knew how to tie a tie. So they needed somebody to tie ties for like 300 kids every day. Is that a rare skill? It turns out oh, it was. you had to do it on them. I had to do it on them. I had to do it quickly. It had to be a double win. That it had to be just cool. done. Yeah. And you just had to flip it or whatever. So they gave me as like a present a Slytherin tie and a Gryffindor tie, which I've since lost. But anyway, um, it was a really good time. And it just made me feel like overwhelming feeling when I was there was that, Jesus Christ, it's hot. Any movie, you just presume it's going to be a pleasant experience to just shoot the whatever. But inside, and you can, you go now to where they've changed it, in Leaveston, uh, where they've done now the Harry Potter experience up there. And it's funny, I'm, I'm tempted to go back just to see how much has actually changed. It was just a constant blast of fans in between shots, people looking incredibly bored. But if you looked around the set, the level of detail was extraordinary. On the side of the cereal packets, it had little in-jokes. You'd never see them on screen. Those floating plates of sausages in the Great Hall, they were all like perfectly glistening or whatever, but obviously were plastic and you could throw them at people. Inside the fireplace, there were little inscriptions and graffiti, and that just blew my mind. And I just kind of realised whilst I was there, this is wonderful. But like you say, Phil, you've got to love it, and you've got to really, really want to be there because it is hard work, even if you are just tying ties or, as I was for a period, you know, carrying props here and there. Are you on the um, credits of the film? Oh no, 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 no! Like no. it was a placement. Like it wasn't like a. I've got a friend who was on the credits for Eden Lake, but they spelled his name wrong, and he was like, "Well, great, that was two months of my life." What was his name? I can't say. Or can I say? I don't know. I don't know. Right? Legally, He's I do. He's still working in films, so maybe I Ooh, shouldn't. Hello. I think they'll get the credit right eventually. Okay. But also, before that, he w- was making short films, and the only experience I've had on film sets is, is on his short films, which I sort of helped produce. But I didn't really know what producing involved, so it just meant me getting in the way a lot and, and being on set and really annoying the cinematographer, no, that's who right. was really, really good. That's how you do it. So, um, with all my stupid suggestions. So, in the end, I just made lots of cup of tea. So, maybe the, the career that's cut out for me is, is catering. On film sets, <laughs> just making tea. And your craft services. Yeah, exactly. I, I That's so interesting. I never knew that about you, Ali. You never the, knew that? I mean, not that yours, yours was interesting no, too. Fine, I'm boring. Sorry, Ben. No. I, that, seems, that was terrible. Great story. Thanks. Well, but nice I guy. didn't know that about you, about the tie thing. You've never mentioned it before. When I host the podcast, I always you know, like to bring wow. out the big, big anecdote. I'm looking guns. forward to the next, for, for, to the second act of this podcast. It's to find out what more revelations that's incredible. lie ahead. I do have to say, though, I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but I did notice that in the Goblet of Fire, the quality of ties was significantly diminished from the other it's films in the dip, canon. Isn't there? Yeah, on that just all over the place with the mm. kids. It, it really took me out of the movie. Sorry. Anyway, go on. Uh, right, we have one last very quick question. 
This is from Jack Kennelly. What are your first date deal-breaker movies? If you discover, say, that the girl or boy of your dreams has not seen Wayne's World, would that be enough to put you off your burgeoning romance of the century? So essentially this is the idea of a deal-breaker. It might be they don't put... uh, They put a heart on the top of the eye, and that's enough for you to realise that we're never going to be lovers. What is the movie equivalent of You Smoke? And it's just not going to work out for you guys. I've had to be very tolerant because my girlfriend... I only realised recently has never heard of Tom Hanks. I do not believe you. Yep. He, it's like not having heard of spades or... Rice. Yeah. It's just like, how has that passed you by? And then I have another friend who hadn't heard of the Muppets. Hadn't heard of the Muppets? Yeah. She didn't know what the Muppets were. She well, had to have no when explain. I arrived at university... Hello, Warwick. How you doing? Roots A Block for life. There was a girl in my corridor who had never eaten a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately went and bought a pizza, cooked it for her, and her response was, that's quite nice. I went on a date with a girl who hadn't heard of Barack Obama. No, not recently. This was before he was elected president. But it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't that far before. Was it he was running like, for president? It, it, it was a year before he was elected president. So, like, he was kind of a thing in quite a big way at that point, And she had no idea who he was. And, but that was okay. I mean, she was probably a lot cleverer than I am. Uh, but I just, it just struck me as a bit like, how are you missing that page of the newspaper every day? Is there one, though, that really, like a film that you just that's say that you have to heard of it? Hmm? That's Bud. Really? No, I don't. I don't have that, really. Yes, I don't you do. Have that. You, you do. And I you, don't think so. Eagle has landed. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Never been. I've never met a girl who's seen Eagle has landed. Have you? It'd be a massive, put it this way. It would be a massive bonus <laughs> if they had seen the Eagle. A massive bonus if they had seen Eagles landed. Have you ever um, stormed off in the middle of a date? I have never done that, no. I would love it if you just asked, look, first question, I'm just going to ask it, have you ever seen the Eagles landed? No, what's that? And then you just leave. Just flip the table. I, I think maybe for me it's like Annie Hall or maybe even Shaun of the Dead. And if they haven't seen them and then I show them to them and they still don't like them, then it's kind of like, what yeah. are we still doing together? That's, that's the thing, yeah. If you sit down with someone and, they, and you watch Annie Hall and they just don't like it, that probably would slightly make me wonder a little bit. Yeah, you think you've got a dead a, shark on your hands. A dead shark. But, of course, you know, whilst you're watching the film, she's, you know, taking a lobster and poking it in your face and it's snapping at you and you're getting a bit awkward. There's, so There's ways around it, yeah. There, there are ways around it. You can forgive them. If our uh, conversation is subtitled, I'd be happy. <laughs> time for our first guest. Jason Blum is the diabolical genius behind Blumhouse Productions, known best for producing very successful horror films like the Paranormal Activity franchise, Sinister, Insidious, and believe it or not, The Tooth Fairy, a movie where Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays The Tooth Fairy. Ridiculous. What next? A Greek demigod? Anyway, Jason Blum is just the man to speak to about all things horror and all things producery. And a day after hosting a press conference with the man, Phil Desemlian, that's you, yeah, interviewed him again for the Empire podcast, and I came along for the ride. Enjoy. My name is Ali Plum, and your name is Jason Bloom. Blum. Blum. Yes. So you're Blum. I'm Blum. Rhymes with Plum. Your name is really Plum? I know, right? P-L-U-M? Yeah. Plum? Yes. I've been called your name my whole life. Are you kidding me? No. We're brothers. We're brothers. From a We're very brothers. disparate group of mothers. What nationality is that, Plum? Do you uh, know? That's entirely English. Plum plumbing. In, in I'm guessing... Plum plumbing? Was yeah. that your family? Well, it's from, yeah, lead, plum, plumber. Wow, yeah. I love My it. question for you is, is there Dutch in your family? No, name Blum? Uh, uh, no my father, Polish, Austrian, no yeah. Dutch. But when I was in Germany, it bloom, and they all think it's flower, but there's ah. no e. But I, I wasn't. There's no German in me. So do people call your production? You know, your production house is now this gigantuan uh, monolith. Hardly. Blum house. 
They call it Blumhouse, yes. And we've been saying... Blumhouse. We've been You've been s- saying Blumhouse? Yeah. No, it's Blumhouse. Now we know. It's Blum. Yes. Yes. Hooray! You'll never forget it. There it never. is. You also have a very cool middle name, I believe. Ferris. My middle name is Ferris. So my father had a gallery in uh, in L.A. in the late 50s, and it was called the Ferris Gallery, and uh, and he named me after that, which I was, I was a little weird mm. to name your kid after your business. Like I'm at, like if my kid was called Blumhouse, that would be a little weird. But <laughs> it's an original name, Joey but, Blumhouse. But Blum. I got yeah, but I got Ferris Wheel, which was terrible, and I got Plum, which you wouldn't think was terrible because that was your name. But I was very upset by that. Oh no, I thought it was terrible too. No, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't tell my dads, but yeah, it's, it's, there's a never-ending source of embarrassing rhyming words for that. So oh, there really is. It's just just so wonderful. Uh, we touched on this last night, the DIY thing. I taught you DIY. The meaning of do DIY. it yourself. Do it yourself. I've never exactly. heard that expression in my life. But that is English. We don't say that in America. You can take that home with you if you like. Yeah, I'm going to. I can't wait. Start a, start a trend. I can't wait. Yeah, America never really got the entrepreneurial spirit, did they? No, no, no. Yeah. No, that was you guys. <laughs> totally. You can that have was DIY you guys. and you can have crikey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on that larger scale DIY thing, I'm desperate to ask you about the Blumhouse of Horror. A Simpsons riffing. Oh, the Blumhouse of Horror. Did it have one of those kind of weird mirrors that makes you just distorts you no, how scary no, no, was no. it it was it wasn't fun there was nothing fun about this this was <sighs> scary that's like a fun house we were this was a very very scary haunted house we, we did it two years we, we took over a big building in uh, in downtown LA and we hired all our uh, our uh, people from the crew like our uh, you know our special effects people and everything and we went on this four story adventure through the Blum House of Horrors we actually the mythology was that there was a it was in a va- it was in a building from the twenties, and that we that there was a vaudeville act, and there was this magician, and he by accident sawed a he you know the the magic trick where you saw someone in half and they're not in half. Well, yeah. he actually cut her in half, and her ghost haunted the theater Ooh, for, for for uh, for decades to come. Rumba. Did at any point Ethan Hawke run out with a machete? <laughs> no, but we tried to get him to do that. Oh, we really tried. I wanted him so badly to come to come with a machete or something. What are you doing about Halloween, Ethan? We need you for three days. We did. <laughs> in a dark space. Ethan's been slow to um, to embrace horror, but he had, you know, he hated horror. I couldn't stand them. I was going to ask. Oh, hates them. Not doesn't hate them anymore, but couldn't stand them. And I've and we're we're really really good friends. We've been friends forever. And I'm like always trying to get. I was always trying to get him to do one. And he was always making fun of me for making uh, making horror movies. Thank you very much. And uh, he turned down Insidious. And then we sent him a bunch more, but turned out much more. And then he finally agreed to do Sinister. And the reason that, that I, I was saying this before, the reason that uh, he finally, the reason that he didn't want to do a horror movie is because he, he doesn't, the reason he doesn't like horror movies is because he doesn't like the feeling of being scared in the cinema, which I understand a lot of people don't. And he thought actually making one, you were going to have that feeling. Oh, no. But exactly. I mean, they're kids and tutors and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's not a scary thing on a, on a horror movie set. So we actually had a great time. And then we... Uh, and then we did it again on the perch. And now he's doing a western for us, which everyone thinks we're nuts. We're doing a western with Ethan and John Travolta. It started uh, yesterday in New Mexico, and westerns typically don't do well at all. So everyone is very, uh, but it's very cheap, so we can't get hurt too badly. Okay. Uh, yeah. Jason, no, you're nuts. I know. I'm crazy a to western. do a western. I know. Not, I know. Not, I'm not really a horror straying. western. It actually kind of is a horror western. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh. I love westerns though, and I'm sad that they're on. Want to hear the story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us the, the story. Give us the I'll pitch. give you the short story. Ethan's best friend his whole life is a dog. 
the dog is amazing and can do everything. And the dog that we cast in the in the uh, in the movie is this incredible dog who actually can't do anything. They're best friends. They go into a little town. It's 1880. He gets into a bar fight scuffle. No big deal. He's been in them his whole life. He goes and leaves the town and sets up his camp like he's done for his whole life. Two miles outside of town. He goes to sleep. The guy he was in the bar fight with comes, the group, comes to find him in his camp, kills the dog. Mm. Terrible. Ethan goes back to the town, kills everybody in the town. I'm in. That's the movie. I'm in. <laughs> you, you the ha- end! You had, you had me a dog. <laughs> All right, good. But What's now- the dog called? We need to know. The, uh, jumpy. Jumpy. Yeah, Jumpy. And Jumpy didn't have something. a problem with like the horror genre. Jumpy, he had to sign. He signed a few releases. He's got a, he's got about seven lawyers. Jumpy, but, uh, the he, trouble with Jumpy it was a heavy, heavy negotiation. It's not that he doesn't like horror. It's just that he doesn't like the experience of being scared in the cinema. That's yeah. that's Jumpy's <laughs> main Jumpy thought he was going to be scared. Jumpy thought he was going to get really jumpy on set, but we calmed him down. Yeah, you got to, of course, obviously. You've known Ethan for a very long time, and it's worth mentioning. Before you went to work for for major studios, you worked for the Weinstein's. You were in theatre. I was. We had a theatre company. You had a theatre company. Malapart. I just wondered if that kind of... uh, There's anything from that sort of theatrical world that that you took with you or anything that you learnt early on in terms of the the the, way that you operate now? um, The thing I took with... I took two things with me. First of all, I've always... I actually got it from... Not to go back to the Ferris Gallery, but when I was growing up, we spent a lot of time with with painters and artists. So I really... I'm very comfortable with them and friendly. Those are mostly my friends are that way, even though I'm not... So the the theater company was kind of an extension of that, and the way that that the theater company experience has affected our business now is that we hire mostly actors who haven't done scary movies, which is counterintuitive. Like most most people are like, oh, this like they the the general Hollywood thinking is you should hire people who've been in successful scary movies to do other scary movies, and I like to hi- I like to hire actors like Ethan who haven't or don't know them or don't like them or feel like. Have a you know have an uncomfortable relationship with scary movies because I think um, I don't know I think it makes them feel fresh and different so uh, so that's the biggest thing yeah. for the theater company. Have you seen Boyhood yet? Terrifying. Yeah. Boyhood is with the zombies. So no, did you see it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see it? We did. I think it's it may it's definitely my favorite movie of the year. Mm. Maybe of the last few years. I thought it was a great movie. It's got this incredible twist where this kid grows up over the course of eleven years, and that's it. He goes to college. Yeah, that's it. The and twi- he kills everyone. <laughs> Because his that's dog's it. dead. That's, that's it. it. That's it. That's it. It's that it's it. you don't know. Not many people waited for the credit sting, but <laughs> it gets pretty hairy. Come on, that movie was good. That movie was incredible. It was amazing. I can't say to talk about the film. Sounds like you're kind of taking the the mick. Really, you just go. You can't be that good. No, 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 no. It no, is. No, it is. I know. It really is. We can't just talk about another movie. We can't talk about Boyhood. Although it is a universal movie. It's another universal movie. Let's talk about Boyhood. Yeah. Let's talk about the Purge Anarchy. Because yeah. um, you mentioned last night that, that there will be more, probably. I hope so. At what point I do you decide? Because so. you, 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 you very specifically don't plan a sequel until the film's out, um, which seems like a good way of, of, of going about things. At what point do you go, is, is it the first weekend figures, or have you already, do you already kind of have projections in place? Have you already got the next one in place? We Well, those are a lot of questions. We definitely have projections. We always have projections. They're not always right, but we're always projecting. If it's a massive opening weekend, we're definitely thinking about the sequel right away. But then there's kind of a gray zone where it might happen or it might happen, and then we have to wait for the run of the movie. And if it bombs, there's no sequel. Okay. It's very sad. And what are your feelings about the purge? The pur- I think the purge is going to. I think I love the pur. I love the movie. Otherwise, I wouldn't be out on this uh, crazy, crazy world tour. So I, I think the movie's going to do really well. I'm, I'm feel very p- bullish about it. 
the, the response from the screening last night was was pretty fantastic. Good. Everyone good, seemed to enjoy good. that. People um, seem to like it. Any movie in which Michael K. Williams turns up with a shotgun, a la Omar from The Wire. I mean, how can you go can't wrong? Can't go wrong. That's our third movie. I was going to say, you mentioned that his yeah. character, who just to, just to sort of give a potted summary, he's the rebellious paramilitary type organization, yeah. which is which is fighting back against this the new founding yeah, and fathers. He, and he's got, got, he's the kind of one of the few people with a moral center in the movie. But go on, sorry. Yes, no, I was just going to say that you, you mentioned that, that that might be the scope for another for, for the next movie or the movie after that, yeah. potentially. I'd like it to be Purge Revolution. Okay. Be cool, right? Is he is he signed up for, do you have people, do you have your actors signed up to contracts or how I does it all work? You know, honestly, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I'm not sure if he is or he isn't, but uh, boy, but uh I think I would think he would like to come back. Uh, the act, the all, all the I don't know if he specifically, but Frank and all the actors have seen the movie and they were psyched about the movie. So that's always a good sign. You you mentioned you might might call it Purge Revolution. How difficult is it in that meeting to pick the name? Because the Purge, amazing name. It's just it's so enticing. We a lot. We weren't going to call it the Purge. No. Yes. You know what we were going to call it Vigilandia. Vigilandia. Is that good or bad? Are you kidding? Would Vigilandia. That ter- is that terrible? That sounds like a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, have, uh, I'll have three Vigilandias. Hold the, uh, hold the olives. Thanks. But Purge sounds like throwing up. Yeah, so, so yeah, there was a lot of... We, we call, James wanted to call it The Purge to give him... All, he deserves all the credit for the title. Then all of the geniuses, myself at the top of the list, were like, I don't think we should call it The Purge. Mm-hmm. We came up with a million other titles, Vigilandia. In fact, I have a t-shirt that says Vigilandia because for a while that really was the title. Wow. Then we went back to The Purge. But it is, now it's a yeah. great title. But it, at the time... Vigilandia reminds me slightly of Portlandia and the idea oh, no. that what The Purge and I would look like in Portland. Where <laughs> By the way, the I, would love, bookshop. I would love The Purge in Portland. <laughs> they would be so upset about it. Yeah, I'm going to kill we, you, but we with, could kill all the with espressos. With espressos. With, I'm going to kill you with feathers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Tickled to death. <laughs> we, did, we did talk about the idea of like The Purge in England and what that might look like. Um, the Purge, Queensbury Rules, was one idea that we had just just spitballing yesterday yeah the purge with no guns mm, gun free cool, right just cricket bats I thought, i'd love it it might be a little longer <laughs> it might be just a little longer it's, well, the purge, thing is, it would be a week in here it would, be it would take an, all, an well, awfully first of all long take two or three days for people to kind of get yeah, going you know, <laughs> you know and then well you know. i've got to finish my tea yeah, Wait, the, the klaxon's gone hang on yeah yeah, yeah you, you yeah. know the scene in in shawn of the dead where zombies come into the back garden and they're just trying to they don't have any weapons right so they go right, at them with uh with swing ball, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This is our problem, I think. And purge night. Mm. What are you going to use? Purge. Maybe it's a comedy in the UK. Purge is a it's a, it's a, it's a comedy. <laughs> it's like a cousin of the purge. We do the purge. You've worked with Stephen Merchant in your time. I have Stephen Merchant, the purge. Him just looking looking at all these things, carrying a cricket bat, going. He, he yeah. He would obviously be the star of the UK purge. I think you should genuinely call it the purge. Stephen comedy. Merchant. The I think to so the purge colon. Stephen Merchant, colon, comedy. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, that's sorted. I, I was looking through, as you do your list of films, what you have done. How many films do you know off the top of your head? How many films did you produce that came out last year? That came out last year? Yeah, how many films that you produced came out last year? Uh, like four? Four. And how many this year? Like five. To next year? It's going to be six, right? It's going to be six, yeah. I you, like to add one a year. You are setting yourself some pretty high standards. I know. I don't mess around. It's going to get to the stage where in 2020... Every movie is going to be a Blumhouse movie. That's what I'm thinking. That's my goal. Why would anyone else... I mean, what else is there? Exactly. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> who would stop you? Yeah, who would... Who's, no one. No. <laughs> I just do think it's extraordinary. There's an exponential increase. 
When when do you stop? When? Well, we get a hard time about that a lot. I have to say that the the thing that we we are we do it is not quite fair because all our movies it's almost like an episodic it's almost like giving someone a hard time for producing 20 episodes of TV mm. because all of our movies are the same budget they all shoot in LA they're all like 4 million bucks they're all shoot for 20 22 days they all shoot in Los Angeles so unlike other production companies which is this is not a negative or a positive but unlike other production every movie isn't isn't an entirely new mm. endeavor it's not a $100 million movie in Romania and a $20 million movie in Chicago and a $60 million comedy in South Korea. It's all, uh, it, it's all, it's all um, unified, which makes it easier to make more movies. Also, I, I don't like, and this is, again, a personal thing. I, you know, the fun thing about the movies is, is there's a lot of ways to succeed at it, but I don't like laboring decisions and being incredibly precious about every single thing. I feel like good movies beget good movies and good work begets good work and I don't like overthinking stuff mm. which is great if you if you make expensive movies you have to overthink because it'd be irresponsible not to but if you make inexpensive movies you can have kind of a fluidity to the creative process sounds really pretentious no 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 <laughs> I get it do you really no I do okay. I mean look honestly okay. honestly if I, if I I would do your model because I keep making terrible decisions uh, and I'd rather not labor over them. <laughs> Decide quicker. Exactly. Make the mistake quicker. Make fail fast, mistake, fail, fail often. Fast. Is that the expression? Did uh, Scott talk to you at all before he took the gig over at Marvel? Yeah, he did a lot. Yeah. Did he? Yeah. Because you, you just... Was heartbroken. T- yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, he's my guy. He's a guy, but everyone's saying, great, great that he's taking over, he's taking Dodd Strange. I know. I'm really he's come happy. From that background. No, I'm really happy about that. I, and, I, and I'm also really, and James Wan is doing Fast and Furious now. I was really happy. I love, the better part of me loves when a uh, director works with us and then goes on to do a huge movie, which is if, they, if that's what they want to do. The less better part of me is a little sad that I'm not doing, you know what I mean? I feel yeah. kind of abandoned. How oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, how I mean, how does Scott protect himself from what happened with, say, Edgar Wright on Ant Man? You can't protect yourself from that. It's just a you, 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 you. He had a bunch of conversations with them. They had a bunch of conversations with him, obviously, and they both think they're on the same page. And ninety nine percent chance they are on the same page. Yeah. There's always a one percent chance that they aren't. But there's that's that's any big movie. That's not Marvel. Any big movie. That's that's the kind of when you're playing with million, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. You know, there's risk. Yeah. That's then, gonna... then the decisions are long and intense. I would... I would never want to make those movies. I love watching them, but I would never want to make them. I really wish I could be there when you. I can only imagine this though. Scott shows you his first cut of the film. I can imagine there'd be some kind of. What do you reckon? Of the Marvel movie? Yeah, of Doctor Strange. You're gonna get to look at that early on. Can we come? I, either way, <laughs> I, I, can I tell you something? I highly doubt it. You reckon? Mm-hmm. Uh, not because of, because Scott and I, Scott's producing Sinister 2 and we talk all the time and we have a really, I really, we have a great relationship and, and respect each other and I actually show him cuts of our movies all the time. Mm. But Marvel is so, I mean, I think if, if Scott showed anyone the movie, they would like, they would, they would burn his house down. Like they're so <laughs> secretive. That's like this old Hollywood, yeah. like, which I can't stand that. Like, we tweet pictures from the sets. We invite people to the sets. We're like, I think that's like very um, old, antiquated idea of like, you, you have to keep everything secret until the movie comes out. I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't subscribe to that. But then again, mm. you know, I don't make those huge movies. Yeah, they're, so, doing, they're so. doing the hype machine. And I don't think you can quite do the hype machine with Sinister mm. 3. <laughs> I think you're right. With, you think that's why they do it? To create oh, hype? Oh, gotcha. Yeah, it's the hype machine. 
No, I think that's because they think it, they want the audience to be surprised. When you go mm. see Star Wars, they don't want anyone to know what the story is. Yeah, but is. it does add to the mythos. To the, to the, you know, the right. sparkly dust right. in the air. I guess you're right, yeah. We weren't going to use I'm, the word I'm mythos, really though. offended that you don't think Sinister 3 is going to have... I mean, I can't I don't, believe it. I don't think it has a $100 million I, I marketing mean, I mean, hype you, machine. I just don't believe it. I know, right? <laughs> where's, <laughs> the, where's the superhero, man? I mean, Where's the superhero? We're going to check. Bagul flies in oh. Sinister 3. Oh, okay. He flies. I don't know. I don't really. I'm not a huge Marvel fan. What is the What is the Doctor Strange's? Uh, what is his special talent? He's doctor. He's medical doctor. Oh, he's a medical doctor. <laughs> he yes. can do like he can right. make people better when they're ill. Is that a big deal? No, here? he's a he's a sorcerer supreme. He's a sorcerer, not just a sorcerer, is but he, a supreme. Is, he, is that so a really like well a known character in the? UK? Not really. No, it's it's just probably one of the from the hardcore Marvel fans. I right. think it's one of those Got next it. tier down. Got it. I really revealed myself as not a hardcore Marvel fan. <laughs> Embarrassing. Oh, Go home. Got I've got to leave. Did you see the blow up thing I did for the plane? That was the. I heard about thing. the blow up thing you did for the plane. That, that was now, my best invention. This is amazing because the, the way the story I read, I think it was in Business Week. Yes, which is even more highbrow than the Empire podcast I way believe. way, way yeah. ha- highbrow and hardcore that's what I'm talking about anymore yeah, okay. uh, instead of booking you went to Morocco is that correct? correct uh, you didn't You didn't want to go first class no too expensive so you booked a row of seats in Th- three seats coach three a seats. row makes it sound extravagant okay sorry there were, it was me, my wife and I traveling so two of us for three seats go on okay and then and you, you bought an inflatable I don't know how this would have worked on a I mean shall I explain it? yeah please tell okay. us Three coach seats. I first of all, I got the layout of the plane. So it's two, two seats on either side with an aisle, and in the middle is three across. Ah, got it. Got it. Okay, so I bought both aisle seats on the uh, on the three across, and the middle seat. Very hard to buy an empty seat. Most airlines won't let you do it. Air Maroc will if you have a note from a doctor saying you have a bad back, which I happen to have. So I got the empty seat. Got the three seats. So my wife is on one aisle. I'm on the other empty seat in the middle. Then I had uh, online, they'll tell you the distance between the the front of your seat and the, the, the and the back of the where the tray table comes out, which is like 10 inches where your knees go. And then they tell you how far down it is, how, how much is, which is another like 12 inches. And then at the floor, it's actually a little wider. So it's actually the shape of a trapezoid. That may be hard to understand, wow. but maybe it isn't. So I went to an inflatable company, which do exist in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, of course. Mostly they make big things that you put outside like Burger King, an inflatable burger. But they made uh, a shape that fit exactly in that space, in that negative space. And uh, they made it for me custom. It cost 500 bucks. So the whole thing was two grand. And the two business class, the two first class seats were $20,000, $10,000 a piece. So for 2000 bucks, I got my two seats and I got my inflatable. Now, the only catch, the only thing that almost didn't work, but again, thanks, thank, happily it was Air Morocco. If it was an American or if it was American Airlines, it would have been a disaster. But they give you a, uh, an, a kind of a gun that, that pumps it up, that you press. It's an electric inflator. Security stopped me for that. I show, I said, they said, what is that? I said, that's my electric inflator. They said, oh, okay. And they let me, I showed it to them and they said, oh, okay, let me go. It's pretty funny. The thing about the electric inflator is noisy. So the plane takes off, I get my thing, and then I start inflating it, and people around me are like super edgy. And I explained to everyone what it was. I kind of said, look, this is what I'm doing, da 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 And then they kind of got into it. And by the end, the guy next to me is like, this guy got to be on Shark Tank. So we, uh, so, so we inflated this thing, and then we could lie next to each other. So my wife lay across the three seats, and I lay on the inflatable right next to her. And the two of us were like two sardines on this thing, and we got to lay down and sleep. And I saved $18,000. Which you then spanked in the long, casino. It's a long story. Uh, <laughs> which immediately, I spent, no, 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 I didn't. I, say, I saved it very carefully. I bought 700 suits from Zara. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thank like you that. so much. That was amazing fun. A real was... pleasure. Come and see us again we... for the Purge Revolution. For Ouija. For... Ouija in Ouija... October. Yes. Ouija in October have you is done... going to be great. Have you you've finished done the Ouija board yourself? When I'm bored, I just put my two hands on the Ouija board and wait for something to happen. So far, nothing's happened. But I've been doing it for years. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for a ghost. Aren't we all? Uh, thank you so much for coming down. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys. Let's move on to our next section. We have lots of stuff going on. Obviously, this week is Comic-Con week. We're recording this on Thursday, which is wonderful. And Comic-Con is taking place over the next few days. Our crack squad of Comic-Coners include Chris Hewitt, as previously mentioned, and James White and James Dyer. They're off harvesting Nerdland for news. We, however, on the regular Empire podcast, will not be talking about too much comic book movies because I am in charge. And that's just the way it goes. We will instead be talking about... Manimal. Manimal. Let's talk about Manimal. Manimal. If you were of a certain age, which I am, but I don't really remember it vividly, um, there was a TV show in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, which to describe sounds so preposterous that it's almost unbelievable. But it is basically Batman. But instead of, instead of fighting crime... He sort of fights crime. Uh, he's a wealthy college professor called Dr. Jonathan Chase who has the power to transform himself into an animal. So a- that, Any animal? Any animal. That's manimal. Or it could have been called animan, but it was because they went for manimal. But he normally transformed himself into a hawk or a panther. As our news story points out, that was a budget issue, I think. I don't think the episode <laughs> where he transformed himself into a blue whale... <laughs> really got past the fight the, the the bean counters so anyway that is being made into a movie now it is actually a cg live action hybrid i would love it to be more cartoony that would be my ideal situation where it was a bit more like i don't know catch the pigeon here but i know it's not going to be it's a cg live action hybrid which obviously will get around the problems that we mentioned earlier where how do you conceivably you know make someone turn into a bear uh this will do it through the magic of computer generated effects and it's going to involve Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, the old Anchorman team, the dream team of sort of comic lunatics. Maybe he'll transform into a sex panther then. Yes, a very good point. Mm. I would like them to transform into Baxter at least once. That would be wonderful. Or just a big wheel of cheese, which I know isn't an animal, but may technically, depending on how old it is, still be alive. Yeah. I quite like the idea of this. He did something similar with Land of the Lost, didn't he, where he took an old... He, they, the McKay Feral team took mm. an old idea and kind of rejigged it. I don't think that was necessarily the most successful thing they've ever done, but I actually quite like the idea of this. If they get the animation right, it's going to be one of those kind of hopefully cloudy with a chance of meatballs, rompy fun. And I don't know who pitched Manimal in the first place, but what I will say is it strikes me as the most obvious, we've come up with a title, let's work backwards type deal and what a title and what a title yeah what a title i would be what a title i I would be proud to have a dvd that said manimal on the side of it manimal on my shelf even if it does sound slightly like a porn film it's one of those words it's just fun to say isn't it you 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 may not want to go and see the cinema but you'll want to ask someone have you seen manimal so people will see it yes they just want to go and say can i have two tickets for manimal Mm. that's manimal i need two tickets for manimal give them to me now manimal to manimal um also, Starsky and Hutch, of course, which which I actually really enjoyed. I don't know how other people feel about Starsky and Hutch as a, as a film, but it made me laugh. Was that the same gang? Well, no, probably not, actually. Um, but it's a similar... I know what you're saying. It's a similar kettle of fish where you take a, a beloved, quote-unquote, no offence, Manimal, I don't think you're that beloved, but... No, wait, sorry, we've got to cut that. That's just incompetence on my behalf. 
I'm happy normally to seem stupid, but if I get completely the wrong people on every front, I think we should cut that. <laughs> okay. Can I? Can we go back? Just say to it before? reminds you of. It reminds you of. What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. But tell you what I wanted to say. What's the What's the spy sort of tongue and cheek? Get smart. No animation. That's one word title. It's a spy thing. It's got. He's kind of a. He does a lot of sexy stuff. Oh, Archer. 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 Yeah. Um, I. I, I'm having a difficult time sort of conceiving what this might look like on the screen, but maybe something like Archer, something sort of hammy and f- tongue-in-cheek, I think is what we can expect. Um, could be a lot of fun. Who knows? Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, I've got something which hopefully will be also fun, but it's actually, if you boil it down, a horror, if you actually really get down to it. Westworld. Does anybody remember 1973's Westworld? Yeah, vividly. Yul Brynner taking his face off. Uh, itchy and scratchy land, right? That is essentially what it is. I'm going to take your face off. Oh. I have not watched it recently. I remember watching it during the period we were talking about, like when you were a teenager or a school kid, and thinking, wow, this is really cool and hokey. But it is this world, uh, a future world, it's Michael Crichton here, where you go to a theme park and you get to be the man with no name. You get to go shoot down all the bad guys in a Wild West world, and they're all androids, so it doesn't matter. They can die, they can come back to life, it's fine, it's all no problem except of course when they rebel against their programming as robots are so often want to do and they start killing the humans that is the essential premise of westworld three years later there was another movie called future world which was obviously a sequel and then in 1980 there was a tv show which i think was called beyond westworld anyway since then there have been rumblings for a long time about whether they'll do something else with this what they'll do with it where it would go now it turns out that Jonah Nolan the brother of another Nolan guy can't think of his first name bringing together a pretty impressive group of acting uh, folk to create a TV version of Westworld and it gets better because it's on HBO which means that it you know it's not just TV and also that it's going to have the budget to really justify it it's currently only at the pilot stage so we'll see how it actually pans out but According to the news that we have to hand, we are looking at the likes of Anthony Hopkins, who will be playing uh, the role of the chief park owner, runner, devious bastard. And we'll also have Evan Rachel Wood, who's an excellent actress and is uh, going to be playing a character called Dolores, who is an android. And his her lover will be played by James Marsden, the utterly handsome and very charming James Marsden, will be playing a, one of the gunslingers whose job is to die every day. And he is programmed to love Dolores, but can't actually do anything about it because that's just not how it rolls. Then, of course, something happens. Mm. Phil, I know you're excited about this one. I as am well. excited. I'm quite excited about this. They're not calling them Mandroids. I wish they were. <laughs> I, the Manimal thing. Again, I would watch a movie called Mandroid. And Mandroid. I, and again, it sounds like a porn film. Does a bit, doesn't it? I'm, I'm quite excited about this. I really love the film. It's from that kind of era of sci-fis, um, which have aged with various results I would say some of the effects are good I just I mean Yul Brenner playing like ultra robot Yul Brenner you can't argue and he's it's he is sort of the Terminator isn't he and this whole Michael Crichton who also directed the film um, premise is basically the precursor for Jurassic Park it's the same basically the same story but with robots instead of dinosaurs um, so you could call it Westworld World I suppose if you were going to take the whole kind of that would be amazing Jurassic part four formula for the title there should be a crossover um yeah well it could be you also mentioned the terminator they were going to remake it with arnold schwarzenegger years ago apparently is that right yeah but they never did interesting well i could see why they might i think i think it's kind of a it's a fun it's quite a streamlined 
premise. You know, it's basically a chase movie, isn't it, Westworld? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that they haven't talking about your Brenner. They haven't mentioned in the course of this announcement whether there'll be a character that will be that gunslinger yeah. and who will take his role. I feel like that is such a big distinctive part of Westworld. There'd be fools not to, but maybe that won't be part of the pilot, perhaps. But whoever they cast has big boots to fill. I just quite like the crossover of sci-fi and what and Western with the uh, dishonorable exception of Cowboys and Aliens. When you look at something like Battlestar Galactica, when it kind of has that Western and, and Firefly, element, of course, yeah, Firefly, uh, Firefly and Serenity both do that really, really well. Those two, I mean, they are sort of the same thing, aren't they? The West become the you know the final frontier as opposed to the the old frontier. Um, so they gel really nicely, and uh, I think this could be yeah. it's handled rightly, rightly handled right. It could be a lot of fun. Just interestingly, just a tidbit on the whole HBO slate. It's always interesting to see what they're doing because they are so often the at the forefront of what can be done on TV. They are currently about to lose a few titles on their uh, on their in their back catalogue. Basically, the Newsroom, Boardwalk Empire, and True Blood are all going, so they have a few slots to fill. Currently, they've still got, of course, Game of Thrones, The Leftovers, which is uh, new, of course, and True Detective, which we talked about last week, and Utopia, which is the remake of the currently on air. Channel 4 series, uh, which we're big fans of in The Office. Uh, that's being helmed, I believe, or at least being brought to the screen uh, by David Fincher. Uh, so, very excited about that too. So yeah, if it's as, all as good as this, like, sign me up. Well done, HBO. Anyway, we must have another news story, and I reckon Ben might have it. got something on my sleeve. Uh, Ant-Man, we all know, is Edgar Wrightless, and there's been a new poster that's just come out, actually, which wasn't that good. You're not, you're not that impressed? Not a big fan. Anyway, it's going ahead with Peyton Reed. But in the meantime, Edgar Wright has geared up his other project, which he's been talking about for quite a few years. It was going to be post-Scott Pilgrim. It's called Baby Driver. And not that much is known about it. People think it might be a musical. There's no sort of hint of it being a Cornetto Trilogy-style film. It's going to be perhaps more action-packed, more in the vein of Scott Pilgrim. Is, um, is it going to be anything to do with the Simon and Garfunkel song of the same Well, name? that's the speculation, is that I think certain journalists have Googled Baby Driver and come up with the Simon and Garfunkel song and said, well, therefore, Guilty. it must be connected in some way, which is all about a sort of kid at home who then goes and has his first sexual experiences. So, you know, maybe maybe we'll have some of that from Edgar Wright. Uh, they'll probably, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, conversation between the... Uh, the record company that owns the rights to Baby Driver because they've pretty much got them over a barrel. Would you like to use this song? Yes, I would. Well, name a price because it's going to be higher than whatever you say. Yeah. We know you need this one. Poor Edgar Wright. Uh, yes, no, I mean, that's probably not his biggest worry right now. No. I'm, I mean, let's just say it sounds good. I'm glad he's off to do other stuff and I'd actually be quite grateful if it was something a little bit more, I don't know, regular, less fantastical. And if it is anything to do with a young man discovering his whatever, that would be perhaps more what I'm interested in. But it's good to hear that he's actually doing his own project still and he's not being co-opted by studios and everything else. I'd rather see that than some kind of truncated Ant-Man um, with him in thrall to, to Marvel. It'd be better actually to see his own vision on screen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the World's End felt like the natural sort of concluding part of maybe the second phase of his career. And this is to use Marvel, hijack Marvel parlance as phase three, yeah. Edgar Wright. And it's nice that he's starting off with perhaps something original, something of his own, um, to you know to head off in a new direction. Good luck to him. And this one apparently not necessarily going to involve his old buddies. So yeah, not much known, but wait to, be, wait to find out more, I guess. Yeah, watch this space. 
you know, as mentioned previously, Comic-Con is obviously going on right now and loads of news is coming out from there. So we won't try and cover that here. Just check out the website over the weekend and uh, over Friday, if you're listening to this on Friday, to make sure you're up to date because we will be right there at Mm. the heart of it. So do check all of that out. And we have a special web address, don't we, for the the whole festival? www.empireonline.com Oh, really? That's a very special address for it. That's the one that we've created for the whole Comic-Con That's coverage. So head there. Interesting. And you'll be greeted with a, re- with a wealth of, of uh, news and information. And stuff. Can I chuck in one extra news story? Yes, you can. If we have time. Sneak it in. Okay. I'll Break. sneak it in the back door. Well, because it's not confirmed, but everyone's talking about it, and it is one of those bigger stories of the week, is the rumours about Star Wars that came through Deadline. Well, this is difficult because it is a rumour. It is entirely unconfirmed is this real is this not real but i think it is it worth talking about it's 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 out there tell me the story as you know it okay so if you don't want to hear the speculated premise of star wars episode 7 skip out a few minutes so deadline of reporting that we open with the opening crawl as you'd expect and then it pans down and there's a severed hand holding a lightsaber which is of course Luke Skywalker's severed hand from the end of Empire Strikes Back, which has found its way tumbling into space. This then results in a lightsaber going down to a desert planet, which apparently is not Tatooine, and then is found by John Boyega, who apparently plays a stormtrooper, who then takes it to Han and Chewie, who then go on a hunt for Luke Skywalker, who's been gone for 30 years and they don't know where he is. That's the theory. That's what they're saying it is. How does that work with the time? I mean, I... I mean, it t- I presumably takes a while. Maybe it's been buried in some desert planet ah, and then it's found okay. for a while, uh, you know, years later. And everyone's pointed out, presumably, that that's not how space works and his yep. hand would have burnt up in the atmosphere. Yep. And, and the lightsaber. It's a strange one, isn't it? Because the sources seem semi-reputable, but the idea seems semi-preposterous. Who knows? It's very bold if it's true and it would be all reliant on good execution. Can I hit our rumour klaxon on this one? I don't know if it, well, if it even works. <laughs> I'm glad. I feel like I've done something wrong by by talking about Star not, Wars. Not aimed at you. Take this with a pinch of of salt. I'm just really glad that we did that before we started talking about it mm. to prevent people from uh, hearing it. Yeah, that was more just a disclaimer, a sort of oral <laughs> yeah, disclaimer. <laughs> um, I just can't. I can't, I'm having a tough tough time sort of visualising it. Really storyboarding it in my brain as I like to do. Mm. Like how how does he transport the hand to to Chewie and Han? I think he does. Does it in he a, have in oh, a bag? He's got, he's got a moped. In a case, like what? How do you do that on on ice? Plastic bag. And then when he gets there and he doesn't know them, he's gonna be like, "Hey, I know I'm a stormtrooper, or I used to be. I'm not anymore. I've gone. I'm gone straight now. I'm clean. Um, I've got this for you." And then he opens the ice bucket and takes out a hand with a lightsaber. It's just I can't see that. To be honest with you, it's a great thing to talk about in the pub and go, "What if this and what if that?" And just to get yourself thinking about the movie. But really, I am not paying this any serious attention. If it does happen, wow, that'll be interesting. But it may not and probably won't. So who knows? On the other hand, though, John Boyega as a stormtrooper excites me. I think that's really interesting and a good uh, basis for a character in Star Wars. Right. And now it's time for our second interview. 
Whether he likes it or not, a lot of people best know Brett Ratner for X-Men The Last Stand, a movie he purposefully designed as an elaborate brain teaser for his old friend Brian Singer. Think of it as a multi-million dollar Rubik's Cube, only Vinnie Jones is in it and he's the juggernaut bitch. Anyway, where was I? Yes, Rush Hour, which is another film that Brett Ratner directed, as is Rush Hour 2, but not Rush Hour 3, which was of course directed by his old friend Brian Singer as an elaborate brain teaser for the universe at large. Also on his IMDb page, there are the words Red, Dragon, Tower, Heist and Beverly Hills Cop and 4, which presumably will happen in the future unless Brian Singer is up to his old Days of Future Past tricks again. Brett Ratner was in town to talk Hercules, which is a movie that has nothing to do with Belgian detectives and everything to do with The Rock and a massive club. So please do very much enjoy this interview. We're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by Brett Ratner, director of Hercules, among many other films. <laughs> Hello, sir. How are you? Great to be here. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Uh, how do you? How, where are you with the film? You've just told us you've been up all night. Oh my God! I'm in the last last uh, hours of locking everything. I'm. Um, it is. It is actually an epic film, to say the least. Not only because of the story, but because of the amount of work and um, effort that has taken to kind of launch this baby. And it's really because I've never had a movie released on IMAX, mm. so or 3D. Okay. So I'm really doing three versions of the movie. Usually I do a 2D version and I walk away and the movie comes out and it's all nice. I have to approve because there's an incredible, complicated technical process. Yeah. Of taking a film from two D to three D, okay, depth as you know, and you know all the comp- all the technicalities, and so it's like as if I'm doing three versions of the movie, you know, and so usually shots come in, shots come in, visual effect shots, changes, changes, and but now you have to drop it into three different formats, and it is unbelievable the the, the workflow. I mean. I, I might. I think I'm going to make it to the premiere, but then afterwards, I'm going to probably check into a. Uh, <laughs> I've eaten more sugar than any because I don't, you know, I don't drink or do any kind of drugs or anything. So sugar is my drug. So to stay awake all these hours, I am. I've literally gained twenty pounds being here in oh London, finishing the movie. Oh, wow. uh, and what do you think of uh, London sweets? Have you uh, have you discovered anything? New because in my uh, personal opinion, uh, British sweets are British chocolate is better than American chocolate. Uh, I'm, I'm going to float that out there. I I, I think I've had my favorite chocolate so far. I haven't really gotten to. I mean, I've eaten all the chocolate that's been put into my room. So, um, <laughs> but otherwise, Belgium chocolate is my favorite. But okay. I think London's got a. I, I heard from other my some of my friends that are much bigger than me. But I'm on my way to being uh, the size of Orson Welles <laughs> if I don't leave here. It's um I saw some of the footage yesterday there's a, there's an amazing battle sequence yeah uh which seems to be largely done for real is that is that was that your that was kind of my approach because the, the the story is really a grounded um story i mean it deals with the myths but it's really um you know the the realistic say version of this of this tale I didn't want to... I didn't mind visual effects, but John Bruno is my visual effects supervisor. He's done a few films with me. He's really Jim Cameron's guy. He's done Avatar and a lot of Jim's... Or most of Jim's movies. I think he won the Oscar for The Abyss. He's more about practicality as far as building the sets and then Mm. using visual effects as extensions. Mm. So these these are probably the biggest sets I will ever have on any movie ever. Not where the battle was, because that was like a little village. The one that you saw, but unbelievable builds and because we were in Budapest we were able to afford uh, building these monstrous you felt like you were on the set of the Bible or something or like I mean it was walking around was and it killed me when I left and they started taking down the sets I'm like 
what are they crazy? This could be like an amusement park for you know tourists. Yeah. But so it's it's uh, it, was, it was spectacular just being there physically instead of being in a room that's green screen and then of course they digitally you know which is kind of I think the way three hundred was done you know yeah. very small yeah. kind of foreground elements but here the actors and 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 the crew and were actually there on set in with these walls around us in this world where you feel like you're in. 358 BC and yeah. it, it wow. transports you there it's amazing which came first for you though Hercules or The Rock actually Hercules I, I, I had been toying with a few kind of films in the genre God of War mm. at one point I was offered Conan you know and actually was offered you know several movies in the genre I'd always kind of had an interest in this genre and I thought that you know in the past a lot of these filmmakers great filmmakers have done their kind of you know, whether, you know, epic kind of sword and sandal kind of films. I said, I got to do it at least once. So I've been toying with it a while, started developing it. And then I get a call that Dwayne Johnson wanted to see me. I said, of course, God. And thinking, and really not thinking about like, okay, who's the perfect guy for this? Because I was so deep in kind of getting the story right. And, um, and it's because I fell in love with the graphic novel because it was the first one I read mm. that wasn't set. It was it was demystifying the myth mm -hmm. and it wasn't just all myth, and which is a lot of, you know, uh, clash and all these other films were kind of in that world and I didn't want to do just that I wanted to kind of do a grounded version going back to Spartacus or you know the f films I kind of grew up loving and watching and Dwayne walked into my house sat down looked me in the eye and said I was born to play this part and when he says it you believe it. <laughs> not only because of his muscles yeah. but he looks and and I, I I remember the moment that I saw, and and literally, as I watch the movie, I don't see Dwayne Johnson. I mean, I don't know if you do, but I'm mm. looking at going, it's not Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson has a bald head. He's <laughs> always wearing a tank top, you know, and like doesn't have a mustache or beard. So it's clean, <laughs> you know. We were in London for a fitting for his hair and his wardrobe. I literally saw him looking in the mirror. I caught him sitting there as they placed the beard on him mm. and as the fit the wig. And I literally saw a transition. I said, this is our modern day Hercules. I literally got chills, I'm getting chills now, thinking about it. I watched the transformation before my eyes. Usually, you know, he shows up on set and he's the guy. I watched him look at himself in the mirror and I actually took a picture at that moment, not in the moment that that transformation happened, but as he was looking at himself. Because he did crazy amounts of training. And oh God, he was like, Brent, if you mess up this one, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> I mean, he was waking up at two, three in the morning and eating like I'm exaggerating, but like you know, how many meals a day? Six, eight meals a day. You know, it was a lot of work. That sounds like my heaven. But then in between all the eating, he <laughs> yeah, has to do exactly. the working out. He I has think, to work yeah. out. Yeah. I think those were eight meals of pure chicken. Yeah. It's not eight oh, meals of yeah, like protein. Crisps. Yeah, well, if it's Nando's, then we can oh. we can talk, we can talk. Uh, or KFC. Uh, then exactly. we can absolutely have that conversation. <laughs> if I'm available for sequels, by the way. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> if Twain drops out for whatever reason, yeah, exactly. I can pump up, man. <laughs> I can, I can do it. Um, but this is a this is a character that uh, has been difficult to nail. How I, difficult is it to get Hercules right? He's a uh, mercenary. He uses his team and his nephew to kind of spread the legend so he doesn't actually have to fight as hard right <laughs> it's like tell him what a badass i am then we go in there and then they'll run right so we don't really we don't, so yes. a pioneer publicist exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we don't have to fight you know as, as hard and they still have to fight they still have some battles but at the end of the day he finds that inner strength and that inner belief and that belief in a higher power which brings him to the hercules that they've been 
you know, spreading the myth about. So mm-hmm. it's 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 a great story, and it's a story that I I, I discovered in the in the uh, graphic novel, and it's I, I I'm, I'm very proud of the film, and I think. Uh, you know, Dwayne is is not only a, a a a great person, but he's he's a guy who embraces a character, you know, two hundred percent, and brings vulnerability and strength and everything that you want in a, in a superhero. Mm. You know, the Hercules is truly the first superhero. You did, uh, I believe, a comic of Hercules versus Superman when you were a kid. I did, yeah. And, and it sort of came to a tie, the, <laughs> yeah. you said. I was going through all my old stuff, because I used to draw comics when I was a kid, and uh, Superman was my thing, and Batman, actually. And I didn't remember. I didn't remember. I just knew, you know, um, that I'd drawn a bunch of them, and I started looking through them, and I found a Superman versus Hercules, which was crazy. And I, I was away when we were doing this book, so I wasn't able to kind of implement it into this book on the making of Hercules. But one day I'm going to pull it out. It's like, it's it's hysterical. I mean, because it's like little kid drawings, um, <laughs> which are really fun. What about the, the, the sort of the fighting in the movie? Were you trying to kind of, you know, create a slightly different, slightly new fighting style because it, it's yeah, tough it's know? tough you know i mean he's got this big club and you know he's bashing people in the head with it and uh you know i wanted I, I call it the jackie chan kind of violence because it's you know it is a pg-13 movie but it it feels like a hard r mm. the only difference is you don't see blood <laughs> it's really yeah. but it's very intense and i mean you saw that battle scene yeah right yeah it could be not that you know to pat myself on the back but it could be a battle scene in 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 a gladiator or yeah. you know except that you're not seeing heads being severed if you had blood in that sequence yeah yeah be, if you saw uh, blood and yeah. and i was i really looked at it and, and looked at you know a 300 or whatever and every shot in 300 has blood splattering yeah so i'm like okay how can i make this hardcore edgy violent because violence isn't necessarily about blood mm. it's about the intensity behind the violence the anger or the passion behind the violence that it will. So I wanted to go for something that was very violent. So it's, it's what I say, Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan's violence is also, and especially in Russia, our films is, is very real. You know, we pull guns, we shoot guns, we shoot people, but you don't see the blood ever. Yeah. And I learned from that. I said, wow, it could be kind of moments of kind of, you know, edginess and, 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 and danger yeah. without having the, the actual seeing the blood fly. It's so weird that a writing often comes down to that, you know, just how much blood and is how there. many times you say the f word actually yeah <laughs> it's so crazy you know if you have one f word in the movie you know you get away with it so it's cra- it's crazy i mean it really the only time in your career you've even em- embraced that sort of level of violence and uh, uh horror is red dragon and i, I guess that's a yeah uh, but even that movie if you look at I, I i really kind of even though jonathan demme's advice was don't watch my movie don't watch hannibal just do your own version don't think about it but i really looked at it and i thought what Jonathan did brilliantly and why I thought that was the best film in the series was that he scared people by what you didn't see rather than what you did see. Mm. Ridley chose to kind of do the horror version of the story and show you, you know, show the character eating the brains out of his head, which I think turned off a lot of, a lot of um, people. Um, um, But it was a brilliant film, but it was just very graphic. And I said, I'm going to go back to kind of more in the direction of what Jonathan Demme did in, in where he scared people rather than what they didn't see and using sounds and using, you know, lighting and a lot of that stuff. So that was that was um, something that I was very proud of because I think it was a very, very scary movie. I remember sitting in the theater and I'd never done a horror movie or, a, you know, a thriller like that before, mm. psychological thriller, mm. but I wanted to scare people 
again, psychologically rather than visually. And I loved, loved having people sitting in that theater with an audience and watching people like literally. It's funny. I'll never forget one time I was sitting in the theater with Anthony Hopkins and we were in the back and I was looking forward and there was this one moment, I forgot what it was, that, that there was a terrifying moment and half the audience were holding their eyes and half the audience were covering their ears. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's, an, it's, it's an incredible lesson, really. Yeah. You just anyone... need a few more with their hands no, over their mouths. No, <laughs> but it was like, if they can't hear it, they won't be scared. Yeah. yeah. So sound is such an important, powerful element. It really yeah. is. And um, I, I'm always sensitive to that when I'm, when I'm... I spend the most time probably mixing the movie. Any movie, even if it's not a scary movie like that, but just getting... You know, making sure every sound that I want to achieve, whether it's a sword hit or mm. I really spend a lot of time doing. It. I think the best filmmaker in the world at that is Oliver Stone. I think his sound design is just masterful. When I went to see um, the Twin Tower movie he did, uh, oh, World Trade Center, World Trade Center, yeah. yeah. When I went to see that, I said, "How is he going to do the sound of these buildings falling? Mm. I mean, how is he going to?" I was so fascinated to to, to see how he was going to accomplish it, and. He did such a brilliant thing. By the way, it was earth-shattering when these buildings fell. Mm. But then what you expect if you were in any really close vicinity of that, that you would go deaf almost. It would be so loud that it would just become like a hum. Then, And it was such a brilliant piece of design work when that, if you go watch that movie again, that tower falls. And I would say watch it in 7.1 because it is just Mm. mind-blowing. But almost the, 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 the silence is deafening and you felt like your ears were clogged up. It's extraordinary. I think I think you must have the most uh, packed Rolodex. Not that anyone has a Rolodex these days, <laughs> but, you know, of uh, of other directors in Hollywood. You yeah. seem to be an incredibly well connected person. You know, you talk to Oliver Stone, your friends Roman Polanski, yeah. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Um, how do you break the ice with these guys? Because is is there and is there ever a moment when you're still talking to say Steven Spielberg, and a little part of you goes, "This is Steven Spielberg." Yeah, always. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean any. I, I'm just. A, I was just two nights ago uh, meeting the Prime Minister of England and. They invited all of Hollywood there, basically. So all the studio heads were there. And, you know, there was a lot of cool people in the room. But all I wanted to talk to was every single director <laughs> in the room. Tom Hooper and, and you know, I mean, literally, I, I just went from director to director just to, you know, some I pinched their butts, some I, you know, shook their hands and gave them a hug. And I was just like, I, there could be a room of the coolest people in the world, but if there's a director in the room. I just want to be in conversation with that director. I mm. don't care, you know. And I'm just fascinated with filmmakers, and I'm I'm just a huge fan. So I think they sense that my passion for their work, and you know, it's nice to hear. You know, it's nice, to, and I love hearing their stories and picking their brain. You have to understand when I went to film school, you know, the only director I met was Robert Wise, and he was like a hundred years old at the time, you know. <laughs> and I was like, I was a kid in the class that kept, you know, one more question. I'm like, okay, you know, like, okay, everyone. <laughs> I had like 50 questions for him. They're like, Brett, can you have let someone else ask a question? You know? <laughs> and and now, you know, I go to film schools and speak, and there's there's a lot of integration with Hollywood and filmmakers and, and film students, really. Yeah. But when I was a kid, I was at NYU, which is the best school in the world. And then four years, I saw one director. They screened West Side Story, and then the guy came in and spoke to us, and he was like in a wheelchair, basically. But it was... Um, but so yeah, so I'm I'm a, I'm I'm a big big fan of movie directors, and and I do have to pinch myself when I'm in Paris with Roman Polanski, and and actually now my company is financing his new movie, so wow. it's and and uh, so it's exciting it's exciting for me, and that's why it was inevitable that I was gonna 
have a company that was going to be financing movies aside from me being a director because I'm just a, such a big fan of mm. filmmakers and, and, and just to somehow, somehow even paying for a, a, a kind of an affiliation. I mean, I'm financing Alejandro Naruto's new movie, The Revenant, starring um, Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Tom Hardy. And Alejandro has just been my friend, you know, for years. It's just a great guy. But just the fact that I got, you know, the first draft of the script, I'm reading it. I mean, it's so exciting for me. And I'm just like a cheerleader. It's not like I want to go in there and say, hey, Alejandro, I didn't like uh, that scene that you did. I, that's not my... I'm like the best person to produce or executive produce your movie because I'm just so happy for you and excited <laughs> for you and I don't want to hang out on the set I got my own you know I don't want to be there like looking over your shoulder I'm just happy to be I'm like the best cheerleader ever so you don't give difficult notes then. no I mean I, I think if I watch the movie and I have an opinion I'll, 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 I'll give it to them but I know what it is to make a film I know how difficult it is I know what the process should be so I'm not there acting I, and I have my own movies that I have to stress about and worry about I wanted to ask you about uh, Days of Future Past have you seen it yet? Oh, the X-Men? The X-Men, yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I was just wondering, because, you know, was there a moment where you wanted to kind of call Brian up afterwards and like, you bastard, you've written my story out of existence. But I guess he's written his own out of existence at the same time. That's a complicated complicated thing, because I I think Brian, um, I think probably regrets not doing the third, you know... uh, and I regret not doing Superman, so we're, we're even. <laughs> um, I don't think it was a purposeful thing. Interestingly enough, you know, and I get it, you know, there's rabid fans for all these characters, you know. Um, and when you kill them off, there's some anger involved. Mm. Of course, I'm the director, I get the blame. But unfortunately, I came on the movie, I don't know if you remember, there was another director. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I came on the movie eight weeks before. That script was locked. It was a $235 million movie. There was, I mean, yeah, I was making dialogue changes, but, you know, um, the one rule that I asked Zach and Simon Kimberg was make sure that anything that happens in this movie, okay, has happened or existed in a comic book. And I literally made them pull the frames. Because <laughs> I, I don't know that, you know, I'm not, I wasn't growing up reading those comics. Right? Yeah, yeah, I knew, yeah. I knew the cartoon. And so I said, guys, there has to be a real reference to this. So when the fans come, because what, what Brian's great advice to me was before we start shooting, do not, whatever you do, do not go on the internet and read what they're writing. <laughs> they wrote the exact same thing about me. Good advice. When I was doing the first X-Men, do not read it because they're going to sw- convince you. They're going to sway you. They're going to say everything. They're going to make you doubt, question yourself. Just dive in and go do it. So I, I did that. I had Simon Kimberg, the expert, and Zach Penn, yeah. who wrote those scenes, wrote the killing of all these characters, and I'm the one getting the blame. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's not that I don't have authorship in the movie. I directed the movie, yeah. but I directed the movie that was a lot of politics involved in the X-Men universe, and Marvel was right there. Kevin Feige was right there by my side every day with Avi Arad, you know, watching me film these scenes. And, you know, it gave me a few notes when I finished the movie. I did their notes. The only note I didn't do of theirs, or it was really Avi's note, was Rogue. Rogue. Yeah. And there was a whole controversy over that and and whatever. But otherwise, I shot the script at Simon Kimberg. So if anything, Mm. I want the fans to go find where Simon Kimberg lives (laughs) and Zach Penn and leave me alone. And please talk to them about it. 
Well, they were on the movie a year before I came on the movie. Simon was in the same chair you were in uh, a couple of months ago, yeah. and uh, he went, "Yes, it was. I killed Cyclops. I killed Professor X. It was me. It, it was? was. Yeah, it was yeah. yeah. So yeah, he so did. Read he, a few he did things. put his hands up. Yeah. I read a few things where I kind of uh, someone, a few people pointed out some things that he said that kind of were. I guess he was getting some real death threats or something. <laughs> <laughs> he might have been. He might have been. Uh, interestingly, I spoke to Brian uh, quite a lot for yeah. our X-Men feature as Helen. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Amazing. And uh, he's told me an incredible story uh, yeah. that uh, when he was in, uh, when he was working on Superman Returns, that someone who should remain nameless, he didn't tell me who it was, uh, sneaked him into a post-production facility at three in the morning yeah. to watch a rough version of Last Stand. Really? And you didn't know about this. He didn't tell wow. you. Wow. So uh, is this the first time you've heard this? And, I didn't, yeah. he didn't tell me, no. Because he wanted to see what you were doing and wow. he was attached to the characters. He'd heard you were, there were things happening and yeah. he wanted to make sure. Well, I, I, what I, I think he, I, I'm fine with that. Brian's a great friend. Yeah. Brian's a great friend. If he would have called me, I would have showed the movie. You know, He probably thought I was sensitive or yeah. insecure about it. But I, I loved... I mean, I spoke to him a few times about it and... And um, I, I think I know who that was, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> oh, God. I've just, got, I've just outed someone. <laughs> he, he gave me great advice. He said, he said, you should try to do everything they didn't let me do in the past because of budget. Yeah. So I did a Danger Room. Yes. Yep. I went and did a Danger Room. First Sentinel. That yeah. was awesome. I shot a Sentinel. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I went, I kind of did things that he wasn't able to do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now on the new one, he kind of went all the way and with the success of the series and he, and he got he got everything he wanted going forward but um I'm very proud of the movie I love mm. it it's not it's not it's very different than a you know Brian's movies are about an hour longer than mine and they're and they're <laughs> you know I would say I don't know say do they have more depth probably but you know it's it's I can tell you this I would have never if I would have done the first X-Men yeah I could have never done the job Brian did Okay. Brian owns that franchise, and it would have killed me to have walked away from Rush Hour Three. The yeah. thought of letting some other director, it would have probably done. I would have probably done what he did. I would have probably come back for a Rush Hour Four. Yeah, because yeah. I, I didn't understand it. How can someone walk away from their own franchise? It's a very difficult. It's your baby. Those actors are your family. I came on. I felt like you know I was an outsider, and they were accepting me into the family. Mm-hmm. But it was. It was Brian's movie, and I, I really, that's why I really looked at the first two movies and thought, you know what, I got to make it my own. I'm a different filmmaker than Brian, you know, Brian, um, you know, but he, he, his approach, and I think what it was, was the tone. Mm. I love the way he started the first movie with the Holocaust stuff and the, mm. you know, um, and, and just, just tone-wise, he nailed it. And I felt his presence or his directing kind of uh, style on this one day when I was shooting uh, Magneto, and we were you, mo- most of the scenes in X Men are interiors. Yeah, most of them. Yeah, we're on a street in a neighborhood, and there's a bunch of kids, kids on bicycles, and we had a shot, and I, we were rehearsing, and Magneto is walking down the street in a cape with his uh, with his costume and a helmet, and I'm going, and he's dead serious, and he believed every, and I'm like. If you just look at it, you're like, this is like a comedy. What is, I mean, what is going on here? But you have Ian McKellen, one of the great theater actors on yeah. earth, one of the great actors in the world. No, nobody could have been more serious at that moment. Yeah. Mm. Just in a walk. Remember that house that he... Oh, yes, yes, yes. I was like, Jesus Christ. Because so Brian set that seriousness yeah. and that tone. And I, I'm grateful to him because I'm happy to have been part of it. 
You know, of course it's the most, you know, if someone else directed a Rush Hour, they'd be the, the victim of all the fanboys who were like, Brett Ratner's Rush Hour. That's Brett Ratner. Yeah. There's a different kind of fan yeah. for that because they didn't grow up reading Rush Hour comics. But people, <laughs> you know, you, when someone has 20 years of their life, yeah. you know, living with these characters, they, they, I get it. There's an emotional, and that's why I don't go on and respond to them and like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm telling you it's Simon Kimberg's fault, but the truth is I'm proud of the movie. Yeah. Every, I would not change one frame if you asked me to go back and change okay. a frame. And and uh, I think w- with time, you know, it'll come around. And I think Brian's been very gracious about it and when asked about it and he stuff. Has, and yes. Brian's a great guy. I love Brian. Very talented. And I'm a huge fan of his. Brett Ratner, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Great talking Thank to you. you guys. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Movie reviews time now, and in an unbelievable turn of events, some new ones have been released just this week, which leads me to think that we ought to talk about them. As we just heard from its director, let's drop kick things off with Hercules, a film that has his rockness rocking a lion hat in ancient Greece, beating up baddos and feeling a little bit tortured about things that happened in his past. I'm going to review this one because I am the person who saw it. It's a very simple setup. Nominally, the rock is Hercules. He is the son of Zeus and a normal mortal woman. He is incredibly big. He has muscles coming out of his muscles and he can punch things through walls and through doors and through anything you can possibly think of. He's Hercules, right? He has 12 labours. He's done 11 of them at this point, which is pretty good going. Well done, Hercules. Uh, He's killed the Hydra and its many heads. He has killed the massive boar. And you've seen it in the trailer, I'm sure, where he runs up a tree with his massive club in hand and just twonks it in the head. He's at that point. But it turns out, in a very neat twist, what they've done here is made this a world where this myth is just that. It's a myth. Whether he is actually the son of Zeus is not made clear. Kind of is, it kind of isn't. He isn't the son of Zeus because gods, you know, they don't actually exist. But everyone thinks he is the son of Zeus. He has a group of friends that help him. They're filled out by a really, actually, really enjoyable group of characters. We're a big fan, aren't we, Phil of Rufus Hall? Big, big fan. Uh, he plays a knife-throwing kind of slightly weaselly, imagine that. He's number two. You have got Ian McShane, the legend that is Ian McShane, a man whose voice makes women tremble. He is an extraordinary human being. I love him to pieces. And he plays a seer who um, can, quote-unquote, see into the future. But they even play around with that idea as well. You know, is this person actually seeing into the future or possibly lucky or possibly something else? Anyway, there are a few others. as an Amazonian archery specialist. Let's call her an archer. And there is a Viking-style barbarian who just runs at people. And they're his gang. There's also the nephew of Hercules, who's played by Shane Ritchie. By Shane Ritchie? <laughs> Imagine that. Who's played by Reese Ritchie. Though Shane Ritchie would have really nailed the role, despite the fact that the you know, age difference would have been awful. And they're his gang. Uh, Dan Jolin, who reviewed the film and watched it with me, called them the Mythnificent Seven, even though there are, in fact six of them anyway so they're that group and they go around the country essentially being mercenaries they go around ancient greece getting things done earning money they are then asked by the ruler of thrace to help him with his problem there are rebels in his land and he needs hercules the great hercules to train his not really an army but just a group of farmers with some shields to go and vanquish them that's where we are but as i mentioned there is this mythological fun that they're having when you see the slightly ropey CG, you're going, is this actually what's happening? Or is it just 
you know what is it? it it's it's actually quite well done it also boasts one of the best the best 12a f-bombs that i have ever enjoyed and i'm a big fan of them obviously the one in x-men first class is possibly the best ever but this one rivals it i will tell you just the sequence and i think this says a lot about what this film does it's very solid it has the ropey lines occasionally that you're expecting it's a little bit you know on the nose there is a bit where reese ritchie is telling the tale of hercules and said i promise you this is true hercules is the son of zeus that's right the zeus anyway so there's a battle sequence there are three really big battle sequences and in the second one guys charging at the rock at hercules on his horse he's really coming down at him then the rock lifts the horse up from under its belly and just tosses it in the air the horse and its rider smash into the ground and he says the words fucking centaurs amazing straight to camera just fast five levels of surreal rockiness action totally good basic entertaining fun not that inventive not that anything but really solid and i think that's my general feeling for the whole film i walked in not expecting a lot from this movie but it actually delivers entertainment on a very reliable level it's not maybe as funny as i'd like it's not maybe as you know deep as you might want from say a ridley scott type take on this sort of thing but compare it to pompeii earlier in this year which was quite bad that was funny because it didn't get what it was doing right you were laughing at how kind of incompetent perhaps that's a little unfair it was this however is entirely competent and just gets the job done and has a little bit more on its bones than you might have given it credit for in short three stars is a recommendation and this does get three stars i would never in a million years consider giving this four let's put it that way but at the same time if you're looking for this sort of riotous rocky romp it's been a while since the rock's been in one of these movies fast six was a bit of a disappointment fast five was a long time ago and you know faster and that lot aren't that much cop uh, so i would give this a thumb up rather than two thumbs up three stars for hercules and that is not us sitting on the fence i actually totally back that up one of the big questions this week is nicholas cage is back on our screens and is he any good in david gordon green's joe all the posters seem to be four stars everywhere lots of love and i'm saying that he is yeah. really really good i thoroughly enjoyed this movie i have to say um david gordon green's just a re- to me a really fascinating filmmaker if you saw prince avalanche his last film last year and i recommend that as well it's one of those films that kind of you couldn't put your finger on exactly why but it really creeps under your skin and 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 leaves a mark on you terence malick is clearly a filmmaker that he's very much enthralled to um, even, you know, old sort of Fassbinder and, and Werner Herzog and those sorts of people. But at the same time, he made The Sitter and Pineapple Express. And go figure. We could spend all day trying to figure that out. One in the eye for anyone who who, uh, who believes that you have to be an auteur and you have to have one unique vision because he yeah. can do so many different things. Um, and this is, I think, one of his very best. It's got Nicolas Cage playing this guy, Joe, the title character. He's an ex-con. He works out in the, in the boondocks of the Deep South and he poisons trees basically for a living he takes a gang of of, uh, of guys who probably otherwise be out on their own with no work into woods kills the trees to replace them with, with saplings so there's a sort of a metaphor there of this idea of kind of renaissance and, 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 and out with the old in with the new which, which reflects in his relationship with Ty Sheridan's character he's a 15 year old who has a brutally alcoholic, violent, abusive father, played by this character called Gary Poulter who I'll just talk about in a minute, but Ty Sheridan, again, you'll know from Mud a film this has some one or two things in common with and Tree of Life, again 
And uh, it's beautiful. There's moments of sort of Malachian transcendence in the way that it's shot, the way that it's paced, and there's explosive Nick Cage moments. There's an extraordinary sequence with a dog, which I won't even begin to spoil. He's so good in this film. He just he shows you what he can do when he when he reigns back. You know, I think we enjoy him when he's doing the bees and he's doing the, the craziness. But he's kind of played that that's a bit played out and it's just nice to see him raining about playing a really understated just showing how good an actor he really is and uh, it's but yeah he, he takes this young kid under his wing and and it's a sort of a it's a kind of a fa- he's a father figure and his real father is a violent lunatic and uh, and the, the the tension kind of builds from that there's elements of thriller in it but it's not really a thriller it's a it's very much a character drama um, it's languidly paced sometimes explosive sometimes uh, emotional and it's all underpinned by really a sterling performance by Nick Cage and I, I thoroughly recommend it we've given it four stars how distracting is his beard because on the poster it's a different colour to his hair and it's frankly freaking me out yeah it's distracting but Nick Cage is distracting for the first five minutes of any film I think he's in isn't he because mm. he's getting over all, this, all the baggage he brings with you you're expecting him to yeah. go Ghost Rider and he doesn't do you think it's a real beard as well because it's hard Hercules, to say. There's a fake. His yeah, it had to be planted onto him every day. Wow, yeah. pretty impressive. Apparently, but it was made with yak hair. In the neo shamanic acting handbook, and there is such a thing. It's about sixty-five pages long and illustrated. You would always grow your own facial hair, mm. but then you could dye it or eat it, eat it, or take it out into the woods with a witch doctor and Shoot it. dance around. Who knows? I was wondering about the story that he told on the Nick Cage special, which came out this time last year, uh, where he said during Joe he stared down a snake. There's an amazing snake scene in this, and yes, it involves what looks like a fairly venomous, not poisonous, of course, uh, serpent of some description, which the two of them has some kind of shamanic communion on set, no doubt. I really want to um, see him in I'm Prometheus 2 when they, they face off against one of those evil snakes. I would love to see Nick Cage in Prometheus 2. I think Cage wouldn't make that mistake. He knows what he's doing with snakes. He knows what he's doing with everything. He's really good in the woods. He's good in... it's. Look, this seems like a really rich period for these this kind of neglected milieu of you know film settings. The Deep South and, and True Detective. Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic. True Detective has totally nailed it. That, uh, you know, There's elements of that here as well. Mud, Killer Joe, um, William... Freakin's film, uh, Winter's Bone, a few years back, Beast of the Southern World. They're all different films, but they're all set in this, mm. you know. And you have you have these kind of characters who are that close to sort of to having nothing to live for. It just ramps up the sense of sort of jeopardy and the sense of of, of the fact that they're close to the edge a lot. And you see that in this film. And I don't want to go on much longer, but I mentioned him earlier. Gary Poulter is one of the fascinating stories of the year. This guy, this is his only film performance. He plays Ty Sheridan's alcoholic father and it is an incredibly authentic performance not least because he actually is is an alcoholic and he died during filming. Not in mysterious circumstances but he was you know, this is the world he comes from. I'm not. He's not like his character in any way, but David Gordon Green was, was under pressure to maybe cut him loose because he was incredibly difficult, I think, to work with, understandably. Um, and he didn't, he persisted, and he was rewarded with his one and only uh, movie performance and is one of the performances of the year, I would say. He doesn't share a lot of screen time with Nicolas Cage, but the two of them together and Ty Sheridan are both, or all three of them, really really remarkable in this film I'm looking forward to seeing it it sounds like a movie that's worth seeing in the cinema so you know if you're curious about going to see this it's probably going to be one of those limited release local cinemas that are into this sort of thing type jobs yeah or you could get it on an old VHS probably as well if you wanted to from a schoolmate 
What? Yeah. No, don't. Please don't do that. VHSs are bad. No, that doesn't make any sense because it's on demand right now. So we could go and just like watch it right now. You could right now watch this film. Yeah, pull But continue it. listening to the podcast and then listen and okay. then watch it. Okay, great. Joe, four stars, wonderful. I am excited to see that film. Right, now let's move on to The Purge Anarchy, which takes the world of The Purge, where once a year the world is allowed to do whatever the bloody hell it wants, which essentially boils down to killing people. We call it press day in the Empire office, and removes it from the homely environs of Ethan Hawke and co, and instead brings it outside, where Frank Grillo is, and murders can be made more spectacular, and people can run further without hitting walls. Phil, is this film a good film? It's okay, yeah. I watched the I watched Purge Anarchy first, and then I watched The Purge. So to my mind, this franchise is getting smaller. But I guess if you watch it the normal way, you'd see an expansion of the world. And an expansion of the budget. We talked about this in the interview, but Jason Blum's model is, I think, $5 million maximum budget, 23, 24 days shooting in LA. This film is... is conforms to those two but perhaps not the first it's a more expensive uh, Blumhouse production than we've seen before and, and that's reflected on the screen it's a bigger more ambitious kind of piece and it's if you like if you like a lot early, of chocolate on your biscuit if you like a lot of chocolate on your biscuit join 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 Frank, Grillo, join Frank Grillo's club good get Hercules's club um Frank Grillo's club involves Frank basically Frank Grillo is the heart of this movie the beating the beating heart and pulsing bicep of this movie. He's the he's the tough guy. He is the man who is out there on purge night because what the hell? He's not a bad guy, but he's got some past, and he's out there and he's doing some. He's you see him at the beginning. He's tooling up. Um, I, I'm so middle class. I can't even say the word tooling up properly. He's tooling up. The boy is putting all his tools in his bag. He's tooling up. Off to work. He's tooling up. He's put. He's, he's stra- it's like strapping a scone to his arm. <laughs> he's got. He's got everything you could need for a good day's violence. He's, um, he's cricket bat. Ra- a raspberry fooling up. Mm. He's tooling up at the beginning of this movie, and um, he's going out. You don't know why, but you suspect there's a revenge mission. He's taking advantage of this one night of lawlessness uh, to go out there and exact terrible revenge. But along the way, he stumbles across a motley crew of people who, for different reasons, are stuck out outside or are exposed to violence and are really out of their depth. And he's left with this choice of whether to leave them uh, to their deaths or to help them get through or at least get to safety and there's a pact made and obviously it doesn't involve him leaving to, to their deaths because that would be a short and terrible film um, so that's what happens from then on there's there, there's horror there's horror elements um, there's this gang of masked guys that you meet early on that keep popping up and you wonder what their agenda is there's some great kind of cityscape shots deserted everyone's obviously indoors now the 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 klaxon keeps sounding there's these announcements of when you know purge night starts and and how long it's going to last for and who's dying and you and it's you know it tracks it on the media using news feeds and um and there's a suspicion that there's maybe a bigger conspiracy at work there's these big trucks driving around los angeles just killing people indiscriminately it's a it's a kind of a brutal sort of satire I guess a little bit like John Carpenter might have done with They Live it's that sort of thing it's it's you know it gets into assaulting the the, the values of the of the super wealthy um, but it's not really interested in, in, in just being a plain satire it's more of a thriller with horror elements and if you like those sorts of movies if you like early John Carpenter early Walter Hill um, Warriors Escape from New York those sorts of films there's a lot to like in this one um, it's 
got all of that in spades and it's got Frank Grillo who is an actor who I think we're going to see more and more of obviously from Captain America 2 and Warrior and a number of other films he's got great charisma on screen mm. very sort of quiet he was crossbones I believe in Captain America 2 that's correct and he was really enjoyable he's got a re- he's such a I mean He's in his 50s, isn't he? He's actually 49. He's 49? No, he's 49. But he looks like he's 20. I actually interviewed him about this movie, and he told me that he, he puts it down to good living. He eats well. Um, he doesn't... He drinks... He says he drinks not to excess, but he likes wine and tequila occasionally. I can see him drinking tequila without it having any effect on him whatsoever. Mm. And uh, he has the occasional pizza, because he's from Italian stock. So that would be right. But he's a, you know he's not a stressed dude. He says he you know he just doesn't get stressed about stuff, and then he kind of conveys that on screen. He's he's just a he's got that kind of brooding Clint Eastwood, mm. Snake Plissken kind of he's in control in an out of control anarchic, a manarchic if you prefer uh, environment. And um, he's a good kind of he's a good sort of he's the tent pole in this movie. He's sort of there with him. Everyone's with him. We're going with him, and he's gonna he's gonna see us through. Um, there's gonna be some nastiness along the way. And, uh, you know, as I say, if those movies, those touch points... Uh, ring your bell. F- ring your bell. I would have a look at this film. We've given it three stars. It's definitely a recommendation, but it's probably a specific recommendation for fans of Warriors, etc. Okay, gotcha. Uh, I um, I really hope his career turned into kind of a Jason statham type thing, because I think he'd be great in a... You know, he, he would 27%, uh, you know, he would increase the value of a relatively generic action movie just by being in it, because I think he has that charm thing. He does um, have that charm thing. I think he can do the funny stuff too, actually. And uh, he's got just a, a bit of self-awareness. But yeah, I'd like to see a lot more of Frank Grillo, definitely. Now, there are many other films. Well, not many, but there are a few other films that are also coming out this week. But what I'm going to do, instead of just listing them and giving you just star ratings, I'm going to ask you okay. to go onto EmpireOnline.com. Uh, and just look at them. They are all there. There are a variety of them. Go check them out. Just a few, you know, Believe is one of them, The House of Magic, Earth at Echo. They're all up there. Do check out the reviews. They have been written, and they are there for you to enjoy. So do check them out. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be talking to the likes of Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec. Just the best guy ever. And also the in-betweeners boys, who will no doubt be riotous and say rude words. Until then, it's goodbye from Ben. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to insert in-joke here that you made during the podcast. I never understand what happens here when Chris... Hmm, this is... This hosting's harder than it looks. Look, I'm just going to say goodbye, and I really hope you come back next week. Until next time. 